I want to talk with you about a topic I title, Who Am I Now? Acts chapter 9 is where I'm going to be camping out. We began a new teaching series last week titled, What Really Matters? And it's a three-week series, and so I'm going to continue it next week. But the topic of identity and self-identity are critical things because our actions, our goals, our plans, our aspirations flow out of who we are. And oftentimes, this question will be put to us, or we'll put it to others. Who am I to you? That speaks of identity. Who am I to me? That speaks of self-identity. This is not odd when we ask these questions because we discover our identities and we discover our self-identities through questions, through interaction. Bible characters were no different. And I want to take you to the first century in the Christian faith. And it was close to A.D. 35. Christianity was in its formative stage. Quite controversial to such a point that Stephen became the first martyr of the church. They stoned him to death, accusing him of blaspheming, speaking negatively against God. Paul, before his conversion, was actually standing there affirming the stoning of Stephen, and he was watching the coats of those who were throwing stones at him. But God was going to confront Paul because he was very, very critical of the church. And more than just that, he'd received letters from the Sanhedrin Council, which I'll clarify in a moment, authorizing him to go to Damascus to incarcerate Christians and to punish them. And I want to pick up the story right at verse 1 of Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Let's stop there. It's amazing how powerful questions are. Questions are tools to unlock information that are deep within our hearts. And there on the road to Damascus, Saul, also known as Paul, is confronted by Jesus in a vision. Two questions emerge from that confrontation. Jesus posed this one. Saul, Saul, 
Why do you persecute me? Spoke to Saul's identity. Who are you, Lord? Speaks to what's going to inform Saul's self-identity. And in that confrontation, what we'll see emerging is Paul's quest to understand himself. Who am I? Is a question that had to be posed. See, who you say and believe you are dictates your aspirations, your goals, your future plans, your overall purpose. The name Paul reflected his Roman citizenship. The name Saul spoke to his Jewish heritage. He had two names, Saul and Paul. They're not, into, they're not, they're not synonymous. Two names to reflect his dual citizenship. I'm going to refer to him as Paul since that's more common to us. At this time in history... Paul's self-identity was shaped by his religious beliefs and Jewish ethnicity. In fact, in chapter 26 and verse 5, Paul says he's a Pharisee. A Pharisee is a very strict sect within Judaism. In fact, it's the strictest of the sect. Pharisee means separated ones. To be a Pharisee meant that you governed yourself by a system of laws, rules. You were legalistic. You were concerned about ceremonial practices. You were concerned about what you can do on the Sabbath down to the minutest detail. What is considered work? How, much can you, how far can you walk on the Sabbath? When I went to Israel some 20 years ago, I didn't remember that it was the Sabbath day. And so I got on the elevator and I pressed the button for my floor to the, you know, for the hotel. And it stopped at every floor. And I'm thinking some kids probably came in here and pressed the buttons and messed everything up. And then it dawned on me, this is the Sabbath. And so they actually have Sabbath engineering. And so the engineers designed the elevator that on the Sabbath, that the individuals, the passengers of the elevator, need not do any work to press the buttons that's going to violate the Sabbath. And so the elevator stops at every floor. Paul was a Pharisee. He was very legalistic. And he considered any variation of the law and even claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, he considered to be blasphemous. Now the man was very educated. He was born in Tarshish of Cilicia. That's where Turkey is today. And he grew up in Jerusalem, studying at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, in Bible days, you didn't have schools. You wouldn't say, well, I went to Yale, or I went to Rutgers, or I went here. You would call the name of your teacher. And when Paul tells us in chapter 22 that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, he studied there, that's real powerful stuff. It's like saying, I, I, I went to, to Yale. Oh, <laughs> hot stuff. You know, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Whoa. In fact, some of the Hebrew scholars said when Gamaliel passed away, they said the glory of the Torah is gone. This guy was hot stuff. Paul studied under him. Paul was also born in a privileged, influential, and wealthy family. That's why he had citizenship, not only Roman, born into it, 
but also citizenship of the city of Tarsus. And only those who had prominent homes, prominent buildings, real estate, can hold that status. Paul, he grew up and he was high sedity. He was high, hot stuff. All of a sudden, he's on this road to Damascus to try to catch Christ followers in the city, bring them back to Jerusalem to be punished, and en route to Damascus, he gets confronted by Jesus in this vision. And Jesus is saying to him in verse 4, Scripture says, He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Jesus was saying to Paul, you are a persecutor. That's how I see you. Paul admits later he was a violent man. He went from synagogue to synagogue and city to city to try to catch Christ followers and beat them, throw them in prison. He arrested men and women alike, persecuting them to death. In fact, he says of himself in other passages in Scripture, he forced them to blaspheme. When you blaspheme, it means that you renounce your faith or you speak evil against God, against Christ. And Paul says, that's what I did. I forced them to blaspheme. And Jesus says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Now, you got to understand what's in this man's mind. He's, he's so crazy about people that are believing what he doesn't believe to be true, and he's persecuting them in such a, a violent way that he actually got letters from the high priest, from the Sanhedrin counselor, a group of 70 men that ran the theological the religious, and even have a police force among the Israelites, and scholars say that Paul was one of them, and so to be one, you have to be at least 30 to 40 years of age, and so there are other criteria. And so Paul got letters from them, and the letters authorized him to go 130 to 140 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus. And that would take several days' journey, or up to a week, depends if you travel at night, to avoid the heat or travel in the daytime. So this guy was so junked up. Now 130 miles in those days, he didn't have a car. He didn't have a train. He didn't have a bicycle. He's going, this is a long way because this speaks of his identity. Who am I? And Jesus says, you are a persecutor. That's how I see you. And you're persecuting me. The way you behave. The way you act, what you're doing describes you. And then Jesus, he says, he, Paul says to him, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus. And then Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Another descriptor of Paul. Goads were long sticks that had a pointy edge. Farmers, when they're plowing the field with oxen, they would have in their hand as they sat on the plow or stood on the plow as it's, as it's breaking up the ground and the oxen's pulling it, when the ox veers off course or slows down, the farmer would goad, poke the ox. Jesus was calling Paul an ox. Eh, eh. 
as if Paul understood he's calling me a stubborn ox. And Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Oxen would get angry if they got goaded too often and they'd kick back. And when they kick back, they actually hurt themselves because they kicked against the goad. And Jesus said, you are kicking against the very thing that's trying to get your attention. See, Paul, he was all junked up and confused inside. And he'd become cruel because he didn't realize that his identity was being challenged and, and he couldn't see that. Wait a second, when Stephen was stoned to death and you were standing there watching coats and affirming the stoning, that couldn't you see that this man who allowed himself to be stoned to death, that he must have had a revelation as who the God is? And you just repressed it. And suppress the knowledge. And when you went from synagogue to synagogue, city to city, incarcerating Christ followers, couldn't you see that they didn't renounce their faith because their faith was so real that they must have gotten in touch with this God that loves them so much? And you just repressed it. Your identity's all junked up. I recently watched the movie Overcomer. It features a high school basketball coach who faced an identity crisis when his high school cut the basketball program. His whole identity was mixed in to being a basketball coach. And he lost his way. As we embark on 2020, who are you? Don't set goals if you don't know who you are. And let me ask you this question. Who are you? John, if I asked you who you are, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I'm a basketball coach. And if that's stripped away? Well, I'm also a history teacher. Okay. We take that away. Who are you? Well, I'm a husband. I'm a father. And God forbid that should ever change. But if it does, who are you? I don't understand this game. It's not a game, man. Who are you? Um, I'm a white American male. <laughs> yeah, well, that's for sure. <laughs> Is there anything else? Well, I'm a Christian. And what's that mean? It means follower of Christ. And how important is that? It's very important. Interesting. Hi, right, so far down your list. Okay, wait a minute. I could have easily said Christian first. Hey, yeah, but you didn't. Look, John. Your identity will be tied to whatever you give your heart to. Doesn't sound like the Lord asked first place. You're calling me a bad Christian? Let me be a little direct. Last time you were here, you said you'd pray for me. Did you?
No. No. For someone who knows the Lord, you're acting like somebody who doesn't, which makes me wonder. What have you allowed to define you? When you lost your team, it didn't just disappoint you. It devastated you. Something or someone will have first place in your heart. But when you find your identity in the one who created you, It'll change your whole perspective. It's amazing how critical a role identity plays. Who are you? Because it informs your goals, your plans, your aspirations, your actions, your dreams. Mark Twain wisely said, the two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. And Jesus loved Paul so much that he wouldn't let this obstinate ox of a man lose his soul and lose his way and not fulfill God's purpose for his life. And there Paul was confronted on that roadside. And the question then had to emerge in his heart. Who am I now? See, Jesus' holy confrontation forced Paul to, you know, to, to ask this, this question because I, I, I can't be that Pharisee, that violent, angry, brute of a man. Not anymore, not after this experience. And so Paul learned on that Damascus road, though he was hell-bent on going after the Christ followers to throw them in prison, having hauled them back to Jerusalem, he realized that his own plans fell short of God's plans. Proverbs 19.21 is right. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. This year, I want to challenge you to, to, to not just make plans because you're analytical, you're sharp, you're creative, you're witty, you're gifted. I, I get that. But what's, what's the good in leaning up your ladder against a building and climbing to its highest point and just to find out that that was your plans and had nothing to do with God's purpose for your life? Acts 9 verse 6 helps us to understand Trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what will you have me do? The Lord said to him, rise up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. When Paul posed that question, Lord, what will you have me do? It was an admission of submission. It was... Paul's acknowledgement, my heart's now changed. Paul was acquiescing to this fact, Jesus, you are Lord, and I'm now your servant. At that moment on the roadside, 
Paul got saved. His immediate priority was no longer what he wanted to do, but it was, what will you, God, have me to do? He fully surrendered to the will of God, though he had no idea of what that would mean. And when you read through the rest of Acts chapter 9, a fascinating read. If you have never read it, I encourage you, read it. Paul goes into Damascus. They had to lead him by the hand. He was now blind. And for three days, three nights, Scripture tells us in verse 11, he's praying and he's fasting. Why? He realized prayer is the best way to get guidance and answer to the self-identifying question, who am I now? God spoke to another disciple in the city of Damascus named Ananias and said, Ananias, I want you to go to the street called Straight. There's a home there. The owner of the home is a guy named Judas. Not the same Judas Iscariot. He had already hung himself years prior. This is a different Judas. Judas was a common name in first century, much like the name David or the name John or the name you know, Peter. These are common names in our generation. So God tells Ananias, go to the street called Straight, and you're going to find there a guy named Paul of Tarsus. And then the scripture says in verse 11, for he is praying. I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall to hear this Paul pray to God for the first time. As he's led into Damascus, he didn't take any meals. He's fasting. He didn't get into any kind of entertainment with his house guests. He's seeking God. He realizes, I, I can hear him, almost hear him in his prayers. God, I, I was wrong. Forgive me. I hurt your church. Forgive me. I was blind with my views. I was filled with pride and ego and ambition. Forgive me. Lord, I behave like a beast, a brute, a bully. Forgive me. Loud sobs must have come out of that room for those three days as he waited on the Lord to try to understand who am I now. I'm not what I used to be. I'm, what, I'm not what I need to be. I'm in transition, and I want to get this right. That's where a lot of you are right now. You're in transition. You're not what you used to be. And you're not what you need to be. So don't go in the business of, let me just set these goals and just do something because you can do it. There's sometimes my wife speaks to me very frank and very direct. She says, honey, you're doing those things because you can do those things. You're gifted to do those things. But is that what God wants you to do? Man, I hate that. Because it, it forces me now to go through this reflection. And stop being busy with stuff that you can do. But it may not be what God's called you to do now. This is why our church is going on this two-week period of time of fasting and prayer. Starting tomorrow where we're taking three days each week, this week, the following week, and we're making those three days fasting days, partial fast, eating one meal each of those three days, and we're taking the other two meal times and turn them into prayer, and we're saying, God, who am I now? 
There must be some self-discovery that you go through, particularly when you're in transition. One of the hats I put on sometimes is a hat of a consultant, and I deal with senior executives. And one of the roles I play in their lives is when they're going through succession. In other words, here's an executive may have worked in that same field for 40 years, ran a corporation, ran a church as a lead pastor, maybe thousands of members, and now they're at the stage where they need to transition out of that senior executive role and move on to something else, even though it may be their winter years, and many times they're weeping uncontrollably because their identity was tied into their function. And then I say to them, your purpose can be confirmed through a self-discovery exercise. Because you want to understand, who am I now? Socrates once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And so I asked questions. And one question I put to them is, ask yourself, what are my strongest areas of gifting? Your purpose lies in the way God gifted you. And when you discover those gifts, you remain intact. You still have a lot of life left. They ponder it for a while. Then I follow up with this question. What problems are you often asked to solve? People call you. They email you. They text you. They get in contact with you because they have this problem. And when you look at the problems that have been brought to your attention over the past years, it's the same theme. And I say, that's because you've been wired by God to solve this problem. And see it as your purpose. I ask this question, what, what can I offer others? In other words, what's your natural motivation? What flows out of you naturally? It's a knee-jerk reaction. Some of us have an incredible natural wiring to be hospitable. Others have a natural wiring to teach. Others have a natural wiring to lead. I said, use those, those motivational gifts. It'll lead you to purpose, even when you transition. Then I ask this question, what are your unfinished assignments from God? What are some things that God has told you to do years ago, but because you're raising kids or you're working or you're doing this or there was a shortage of money or maybe a health challenge, but those things, they, they, they still remain undone. God didn't change his mind. Go do it now. And then I close out my self-discovery time with this question. What are your areas of passion? What, what, what excites you? What keeps you up at nights? What awakens something deep within you? Now, I want you to look at these five questions, and at least one of these five questions really resonate with you. And in the moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to really mull over that question to see if you can help answer the bigger question, who am I now? Miles Monroe discovered that the greatest tragedy in life is not death, but a life without a purpose. What's your purpose? 
I want to put back on the screen the five self-discovery questions. And I want you to take a moment right now, select one of them. And I want to give you a moment to just mull it over in your heart to see what you can discover about who am I now. week I'm going to ask you to mull over those questions before you leave the sanctuary I'm going to put a flyer in your hand with those five questions and I want you to sit as you're going through your prayer time and ask yourself these reflective questions so you can be able to get to an answer to the larger question who am I now then you can start setting your goals for 2020 and beyond because you would know who you are and your goals full out of who you are and not just busy doing things. Paul had to struggle not only with who am I now, he had to struggle with the question, who am I becoming? See, as Paul waited on God over the span of those three days and three nights, he was learning that Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul had just, he, he cemented it, he resolved it, he, he, he accepted this fact, and he also accepted the fact that I will serve him for all of my life. Something happened in Paul. He was no longer angry. He was no longer hate-filled. He was no longer enraged with the idea that Christ's followers should be driven off the earth. He couldn't be. He had become one of them. He was no longer searching, confused about life, about God, about purpose. And in a vision, he's there in that home. God's dealing with Ananias in another house. Ananias... As he's there struggling because God tells him, I want you to go to go and meet this guy, Paul. And I said, God, don't you know that this guy is a violent man? He's, he's throwing you know, your children in jail and beating them. And, and God says, look, no, I, I want you to go. And in verse 15 of Acts 9, here's what God tells Ananias. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer from my name. Ananias goes, 
And he tells Paul, Paul, having prayed for Paul, Paul gets healed of the blindness. And then he tells Paul, he said, Paul, because remember Paul's searching question, who am I becoming? Paul, God's going to call you to proclaim Jesus among the Gentiles. It may have become so real to Paul. That's why I grew up in a multicultural city of Tarsus. I know Gentiles, how they think. Ananias continues, God's going to use you to proclaim Jesus among kings. Paul, it dawned on him. That's why I grew up in a wealthy family that understood how to deal with people of influence. Ananias continued, God's called you to proclaim Jesus among the Jews. It dawned on Paul. That's why my strict Hebrew background, my strong educational training in the law, I know how to deal with Jews. But Paul couldn't get started unless he had one other thing in his arsenal. Verse 19 tells us, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. You may say, what does that verse tell you? It tells me that the great Paul, to become the great apostle to the Lord's church, needed community. Just imagine the irony of God. Paul came to Damascus to lock up believers, but he wound up linking up with believers. He came to condemn them, but wound up communing with them. He came to weaken the church, but wound up strengthening the church. God is amazing. He can turn things around. He can turn people around. He gets the last laugh in every situation, in every circumstance. I don't know who you're dealing with and what hard case you're dealing with, but don't give up on them because God always gets the final word. Period. And there Paul discovered that no one can truly fulfill his or her purpose without strong community. Some of you, you float around way too much. One week you're here. Next week you're there. This week you're here. Then I won't see you again for another four weeks. Why? Because you're there. You, you can't grow that way. You, you can't become anybody powerful and strong. You can't experience your gifts. And nobody's that gifted in the kingdom of God where you can miss out on community. Community is essential because it's a place of discovery of gifts. It's a place of protection because the members of the community protect you from the enemy through their prayer. You know, they protect you from yourself when foolish thoughts emerge in your mind to try to throw you off track. They encourage you. They challenge you. They confront you. They affirm you. We need community. And I don't care how precocious you think you are, nobody in God's kingdom skips grades. We just heard on the news just a couple of weeks ago. A nine-year-old boy in Belgium just finished his undergraduate degree in electrical engineering. Nine years old. Man, I feel stupid. Finished in nine months. Just took care of it. In God's house, in God's kingdom, nobody skips grades. And nobody can just blow right through. You don't just get saved and start at the top. You get saved and you start at the bottom. 
and you walk with Jesus for years and you're still at the bottom because the way up is down. If you humble yourself, then he exalts you. But he doesn't exalt you because you're gifted, because you're smart, because you're talented, because you're wealthy, because you're influential. No, everybody starts at the bottom. Guy at the East Campus, a couple of weeks ago, came to me and said, I, I see myself on the stage and just preach before thousands. I said, you just got saved. He said, I need you to mentor me. I said, I can't mentor you. He said, why not? I said, because you're not there yet. You're starting too high. Start right down there. You're not ready yet. Erwin McManus, he said, the more isolated and disconnected we are, the more shattered and distorted our self-identity. We're not healthy when we're alone. We find ourselves when we connect to others. Without community, we don't know who we are. I, I just want to encourage you. Connect with us. Let's do life together. Let's become the people of God together. I need you and you need me. We need each other. My gifts are discovered within the context of community. Your gifts are discovered in the same way. My gifts blossom within the context of, commu of community. And yours also. And even the great apostle-to-be needed the community. Three questions about what really matters. Who am I? Who am I now? Who am I becoming? I pray that you become whom God calls you to become so your goals flow out of your identity and purpose.